Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Being a Grateful Leader. In it, you'll discover the personal, professional, and even medical benefits of gratitude and how you can practice gratitude as a leader. Make sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 289. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am excited about today's guest. I've been thinking about um, his content and, and kind of what he focuses on since we first met about a month ago, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy hearing from him. He is the founder and CEO of a company called SwiftKick, which I think we all know the, the last half of that phrase, <laughs> and he trains leaders and their teams on how to build a culture of connection within their organizations. He's also a very prolific speaker. And he coaches CEOs um, as an executive accountability coach. He has won seven national speaking titles. So he is good at that whole speaking thing. (laughs) He's also been featured in USA Today, Fast Company, the New York Times, and the Chicago Tribune, as well as MTV. So, you know, putting a little bit of a spin there. And is the co-author of an Amazon bestselling book. And he is actually working on his second book, which is about what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome to the show, Tom Kriegstein. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for having me here. Uh, I am uh, honored to be on the podcast, and I'm nervous about that intro you just gave because now I have to live up to it. <laughs> Sorry, I know that happens. And it's always funny because I feel like nobody, when they think of themselves, thinks of all of those highlights of your resume, you know, but it's, it's what's on your LinkedIn and what's on your website and other places. And then somebody reads it off and you're like, I did all that. Huh? (laughs) It sounds so good. I'm like, who is this guy? I want to hear him. Super impressive. All right. Well, speaking of that, I would love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Maybe talk about um, where you develop the passion for what it is that you're doing and some of the key stops on the journey to where you are today. Sure. Well, I think I should get the important stuff out of the way, which is that I was born on a farm. I was named after a cat and (laughs) peanut butter. Now that we we got the important stuff out of the way, I can say uh, I live in New York City, uh, married happily and have have a stepdaughter here and have been speaking professionally for 15 years. A majority of my time in the original part of my career was in the college university space. And then I transitioned into the corporate space, recognizing that this concept, which we'll talk about later, culture of connection, uh, exists anywhere there's a group of people, there's a need mm-hmm. for culture of connection. Uh, and so for me, the origins of getting into speaking happened when I was a college student and a speaker came to my campus. And I was so amazed by him being able to move the audience with his words Mm. I went up to him afterwards. I said, I want to do what you do. Uh, And and like any good college student, I didn't follow up (laughs) with him. And uh, so memories. Exactly. It took me till my senior year to really take it seriously. And I won this academic award. And so my school kind of asked me to go speak as well. And then I became valedictorian of the school. So I got to give the speech there. And I realized that there was a career here. Uh, And it wasn't just born out of the fact that I was a college student about to graduate and needed a job. It was also Mm -hmm. based on the fact that my life shifted because I got involved outside the classroom. And in in the university space, it's called the co-curricular space. Mm. It's what creates the culture of the campus. And that concept of the culture of the campus is where it originated to make me realize that 
any group anywhere, whether it's a university, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a nonprofit, when there's a group of people, there's the what you do, there's the how you do it and the why you do it. And then there's the culture that exists uh, surrounding that whole framework uh, and that that culture is sort of this unwritten rule, but so mm-hmm. much that determines the success of that organization or not. Absolutely. It's funny. I had never heard that term co-curricular space before, but as soon as you explained it, it made total sense. And I think back to even my college experience and all of the things that made the school what it was that have absolutely nothing to do with what's in the classroom or the logo on the basketball uniforms or anything else. You know, there, there was a rock in the middle of campus and anytime somebody got engaged, they would spray paint on the rock. And that just was a thing. And that got passed down through the generations. There are pictures of it from back in the 70s, you know, and it's a big part of the school. And there, there are all kinds of other silly little traditions and they become so incredibly important. And that's mostly, I think, what people remember. Um, and then even you think about, you know, how you interact with professors. And it's different at different schools and that creates a different culture. And so we can kind of apply that into the workplace. And we all understand that um, your workplace, whether it's a physical place or not anymore for many of us, um, it's a lot more than just the work that you do. It's the way you interact with everybody there. and, And that's the culture. Well, right. And so here's the thing, though. The culture happens whether you want it to or not. Mm. Now the question becomes, as as us as the leaders of the organization or the manager of the team, how are we cultivating the culture? And if we aren't, what is that culture? And and so that's, that becomes sort of the crux of it, is that this is a thing that's happening in an organization and is determining so much of the success or failure of the organization and yet no one's getting trained on it. It's not like a mm. thing that you like you, you take a class and all of a sudden now you're an expert in company culture. <laughs> There's lots of books written on it. And and unfortunately, I think the thing is, is that my I hope that my perspective gives a spin to a new way to think about it um, mm. compared to the past. Absolutely. So you did a great job of setting me up for my next question. So excellent skill there. So you talk about that culture of connection. And I think we can all, again, reflect kind of on cultures we've experienced. And I love when you said it it does happen, whether you want it to or not. And um, nobody ever sets out to create a negative culture, but there are negative cultures. So we can see how it happens on the negative side. Um, I'd love to talk about uh, a positive side. And the value of having a culture of connection. So could you tell our listeners why it is so important for leaders to focus on this? I don't think it's something leaders used to really think about all that much, right? But it's become um, a lot more important and people are becoming aware of why this is something they need to focus on. Yeah, let let me give a a quick story that hopefully will lead to the answer. So the quick story is I was taking a flight. I know this is, it seems like forever, (laughs) we're all flying as much as we used to, but I was taking a flight and and it was a long flight and I love to drink water. So I had my my canteen on the flight and I drank the water and then I went to the back of the plane to fill it up in their kind of like water station. And I mm-hmm. went to go fill the water into my, my canteen from their bottle. But then the flight attendant said, no, 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 no. You can't pour our water directly into your water bottle. You have to use a cup. <laughs> At this point, I'm annoyed, but I'm like, okay. So I take their bottle, pour it into a cup, pour that cup into my bottle. Uh, and, and then I go to fill that cup up again because, you know, they only give you those like tiny little shot glasses. And I mm-hmm. use their cup again, but then the, the the flight attendant goes, no, 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 you can't use the same cup twice. 
And they go, oh my goodness. And now I'm just frustrated. You know, like I'm wasting, I'm wasting bottles, time. And honestly, I'm thinking about the turtles in the sea at this point. And, mm-hmm. and so and and I finish, but I'm as I'm walking back, I'm thinking about it. I go, you know what? That flight attendant, I bet, is a hundred percent correct in doing the job that she was trained to do. Meaning mm-hmm. if we were in a manual, it gave her a script that said, this is exactly why, how you should process this information here because of spread of germs and blah, 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 blah. Like what, all of that. The problem is, is that we have these manuals and every organization has a manual, but the problem is the other side of that manual or that exchange isn't a computer. It's a human being. Absolutely. And, and this is where the culture of connection comes in because it's this idea that we have a technical hat and a human hat and we get tons of training on the technical side of the work we do, but we don't get a ton of training on the human side. But yet Mm -hmm. if we get better and train better on the human element, the human side, the technical side actually becomes easier. And so that's where this concept of culture or connection is that when we focus on the human to human connection, whether it's within our teams, within our leadership, and within our clients, everything else gets easier. Absolutely. And I love that story and that example because that demonstrates how the culture that you have projects out and it's the way that your customers interact with you. It's your buying process. Something I have seen, um, it's kind of an internal joke at Criteria for Success because, you know, people hire us to help them with their sales teams and their sales process. And the way they buy from us is typically the way they have to sell. And so the companies that are in spaces where they have to jump through all kinds of hoops when they're selling and they're just used to, and they've built a culture of a very detail oriented step-by-step, you know, 50 step sales process, they will expect to buy using a 50 step buying process. And it's amazing how, um, you know, the, you think a lot of times when you hear the word culture, that culture is about what happens inside your business and how people relate to each other. And that is, but it is something that will impact everybody around the company as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and of course, you know, it, you can't talk about culture without quoting something from Tony Shea, uh, from mm-hmm. you know, Zappos. So I do remember a quote related to this because uh, you're talking about the front lines and how that interacts with our clients. And he, he has this quote, he says, uh, we thought that if we got the culture right, then building our brand to be about the very best customer service would happen naturally and on its own. And he proved that true. When they focus on the culture and getting a culture of connection, so that his people feel like this is our place, this is where we belong, then those people went and talked to clients and they made the clients feel like this is our company, this is the group I want to be associated with. And so, you know, something to think about is, you know, what story, this is for anyone who's listening, kind of think about these questions. What story are your forward-facing people telling Mm. about your company, about your culture? Are they so happy with their careers that they make everyone they speak to love your company as much as you love, hopefully you love your company, or are they disenfranchised and, and they kind of brush off potential clients and recruits? You know, he, it, it, this is something that every manager leader should be thinking about because if we get the company culture right, that's going to translate out into the client relationship as well. Absolutely. And um, again, I love that you said, just think of a story that 
that you are projecting, but you can also think of the stories of what you've experienced um, in interacting with different, um, you know, vendors and uh, clients and, and all kinds of different people and think of the stories you've experienced that you feel are, are positive and you want to build a culture that can kind of replicate that experience versus a negative one. You know, I'm even thinking about, um, you know, if you go into a restaurant, when you see the people there and they seem, you know, unhappy and uh, very stressed and unpleasant and just clearly not enjoying their job, it's it's just a job to them versus when you go into a restaurant and you can tell that the people are being taken care of and they're excited and they're happy to to deal with you. It's a very different thing. And it's a it's a happier experience That's that you have as as a customer. You don't want to be sitting in a restaurant and you just feel like the employees are just waiting for you to leave because they don't really want you there. That's right. And I want to use one stat that comes from the university uh, space that we can translate into corporate. Uh, at mm-hmm. the university level, uh, the students, their first year, 30% of students drop out or transfer their first year. There's a high retention, or there's a there's a high turnover rate there of 30%. Mm-hmm. The number one reason students will drop out or transfer is because of some big life event that happened, like uh, out of their control, they, a, a death, mm-hmm. a move. Uh, something catastrophe, some sort of catastrophe. But the number two reason is they don't feel socially connected to the institution. And I mm-hmm. think about that with, with employees and I also mm-hmm. think about that with clients is when they think about your organization, do they feel like this is their place? These are their people. Do they have, you know, do they have a, a, a friend at work? Is the mm-hmm. vertical relationship between me and my manager, is that is that healthy? Is that solid? Or is it poisonous and, and, and negative? Because all of that plays into that employee, not only feeling like this is their place, but also the research backs up that when they are happy, when they are excited, when they are motivated and feel like it's their place, that they're more productive, more uh, mm-hmm. they, they work longer hours, they have lower stress, and, and ultimately for the company, profitability and, and uh, productivity goes up. Absolutely. Even that example you said of, of a work friend, it's the difference between when something stresses you out at work and you know you have a difficult client or a difficult project or whatever it is, being able to talk to somebody at work that understands what it is that you're talking about versus going home and trying to talk to your partner or spouse or roommate or somebody else and they don't even have the context and so you get mad or trying to explain it. Um, you know, just being able to to feel that that there are people around you who understand you and understand what it is that you do and care about. Um, you know, if you have a birthday, knowing that that people at the office are going to know and celebrate it if you like to celebrate it, or they'll help you hide it if you don't like to celebrate your birthdays. Uh, just having that, that sense uh, that you like the people around you, it's so valuable and so important. And we all have probably had jobs where we had that, and we've had jobs where we didn't have it. And we can really see the difference in how we thought about coming to work on Monday morning. Yeah. And I know some of your listeners are going to be like, well, where's the data? Show me the data. <laughs> I, I want to back it up. Um, so th- these are there's a plethora of value mm-hmm. in this. But so employees who are engaged and thriving are 59% less likely to look for a job with a different organization within 12 months. Happy workers are 12% more productive. Employees who experience social interactions between coworkers show that they work Work longer hours with increased focus and under and under more difficult uh, conditions, and it, it goes on and on. Like I can, I if an employee has a caring coworker or a caring manager, they're more productive and higher have a higher retention rate. So this data is is out there, um, and yet here's the issue: 
The issue comes in that Gallup, of course, they do their, their study every year on employee engagement. And the last time they did the study, there was like 73,000 employees in 141 different countries. And they found that 24% of employees are actively disengaged, 63% mm. are not engaged, and 13%, only 13% are engaged. Wow. $7 trillion is spent on trying to increase employee engagement. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like people might need a swift kick. What worked in the past or what we thought worked in the past clearly is not working in the current day. And something has to shift and something has to give. Yeah, it's not just about, you know, the company giving everybody a turkey at Thanksgiving. Um, there's a lot more that you can do. I'm thinking of examples of yeah. uh, uh, what I've seen. And my dad's workplace used to do that. I think when he celebrated 30 years at his company, he got a watch. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> yeah, that, felt very valued. That's the trick. That's the trick is that you know, it's similar to the conveyor belt. We tried to treat every single employee as like a robot on a conveyor mm-hmm. belt and, and each one's equal. The problem is, is that employees are not equal. They're, they're, they're actually, they're, they're very different. And mm-hmm. Frederick Hertzberg is one of the, he's a social psychologist. that was one of the first ones to study employee motivation. And he called it the two factor theory. There's the hygienic and the, and the intrinsic and the hygienic is like, is my pay fair? Are my hours fair? Is my benefits fair? All that stuff. And he found that that only goes to a certain level and then stops. Mm-hmm. Whereas the intrinsic is unlimited motivation. And so here's the trick. Intrinsic is individual to each person. Mm-hmm. And, and if I could share a quick story, I was working with a group of uh, professors one year and I was telling this concept of intrinsic versus hygienic to uh, actually it was, it was administration and, and professors. And one of the, at the break, one of the professors came up to me and said, you know, I really, I really wanted to, to share why I love my job, but I was embarrassed. And I said, well, well what, 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 what's your reason? She goes, well, I, I really love the vacations. <laughs> and, and I laughed about it. Obviously at the university level, they have, they have all the vacations. And if you happen to be someone of Christian faith, you know, your vacation pretty much lines up with their schooling schedule. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, let's play this out. Like, what was your childhood like? What were, what were holidays like during uh, your childhood. And she went on to tell me a story about how her dad was a truck driver, mom worked two jobs, they had several kids. And so the holidays would sort of come and go and she wouldn't participate in any of them. And she felt like they were kind of a waste of time. And then she had this moment, like a light bulb went, ah. <laughs> she realized that the reason she loves holidays now and why she values them so much, because she didn't have them as a child. So she wants her mm-hmm. to have them. So now if I were her manager, I would take that story and then every bit of motivation or, or incentive that I were creating for that person, I would try and figure out a way to revolve it around the fact that she wants her holidays. That's Absolutely. But of course, you know, that involves each manager building an individual relationship, God forbid, with their employees. <laughs> and that's where the culture of connection comes in. We can no, we can't we just can't treat every employee the same anymore because there's just different levels. It's just how it is now. And 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 so what worked in the past where we thought everyone was equal is not the same. In fact, they're very different. It's funny because I think a lot of organizations have recognized that when it comes to their clients. 
clients. And um, we have a model that we use with, um, that we teach our clients to use uh, called the client evolution model. And we recognize that there are stages of developing a relationship with a client where somebody who is at kind of a customer level and they're buying from you because they like your price and they like the terms and conditions, you know, the service is fine. That's very different from an advocate who is so excited about working with you and they want to introduce you to everybody and they want to get, you know, be a reference and write a testimonial. And if you treat all of your customers the same, you're going to get kind of mid-level results from everybody. You're going to kind of irritate that customer level by asking them to do things they're not ready to do. And you're not going to ask enough of the people at the advocate and partner levels because you don't want to ask too much from the customers. And so we think that, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple, logical framework when it comes to clients kind of separating them into buckets. But I don't think many people really think about um, whether you want to do it at, at, at bucket level like that of, of thinking about the differences between their employees and thinking about, you know, could we have different incentives for people who care about different things? Could we um, have different styles of interaction and management for people depending on what works best for them? And it's so tempting to just do one size fits all. And it's really not generally a fit for anybody. That's exactly right. And, and the same concept of the, the, the engagement-based leadership is what I call it. Engagement-based leadership with employees is the same as true for clients. It's first mm-hmm. recognize what level they're at, engage them at that level, and then try and move them one step closer to, as a client, obviously being a, a, a raving fan, uh, that's the end goal there is a raving fan. Uh, and so you, as you said, you have the life cycle of the client and, and, we need to understand that no, not all clients are the same anymore. They can't, you can't mm-hmm. treat them the same. <laughs> they don't want it to. Irritates them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And same thing for employees. Now, I know you have a model called the dance floor theory that kind of demonstrates this that we've just been talking about, and it's, I believe, the subject of your next book. So, could you explain your dance floor theory to our listeners? That's right. That's right. I know it sounds so strange to think about dance floors. And then you think about engaging clients, engaging your company and creating company culture. That's Should we dance connection. with them? <laughs> I mean, the odd thing is, is it totally makes sense. Your organization is a dance floor. Your client mm-hmm. pool is a dance floor. And by that, I mean, if I had all of you, all the listeners right now, visualize a dance floor, what you'd recognize quickly is that there's different levels of involvement, meaning the people Mm -hmm. who are dancing the most, AKA your raving fans, they're in the center of the dance circle and and they're Mm -hmm. dancing like crazy. Then if you span out from the center, it gets less and less in terms of the involvement. And of course, Mm -hmm. Gallup has their numbers, uh, 24, 63, and 13. Uh, We break it down into about six, not about six different levels uh, of engagement Mm -hmm. on a dance floor. And, but yet that concept exists within an organization, within a community, within a client pool. And now, so here's the thing. First, we have to recognize what level of engagement someone's at. So mm-hmm. we need to measure, some way to measure them. Then the second step is, once we recognize what level they're at, we have to engage them at that level mm-hmm. plus one. We call that X plus one. And so now all of a sudden you recognize, okay, so I'm at, and we, we, we call it, uh, five being the highest. So five, four, three, two, one, and then neutral, neutral being the edge of the dance floor. Mm -hmm. 
oftentimes we're trying to treat a five like a neutral, but the reality is a five is so different than a neutral. And, so, and same thing with a three. You know, a three is different than a five. And, and each step of the way has to be interacted with in a different way. Uh, and that's where dance floor theory comes in because we give the entire organization a framework and a language with which they can confront the problem or the challenge, but then also solve it. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes really I, powerful to moving forward. Absolutely. I love that because even if you, if you picture it in your mind, you know, when there can be crowded dance floors again, um, those people at the middle, that makes sense. And they're all the very excited people. And you think of the wallflowers mm-hmm. hanging around the edge and who can sneak out very easily. Um, and who's more likely to sneak out because they're not having fun. It's all those people at the edge. And so I think that speaks to, you know, your customers who are at that kind of wallflower stage are the ones most likely to move to somebody else if there's any sort of temptation to do so. You know, ooh, somebody else has a different price, has a shinier package, whatever it happens to be. Um, and your employees who are hanging out there at the edge, they're not attached to your organization. You know, yes, you sign their paychecks and maybe you cover their health insurance. But uh, again, a better offer comes along and they're very, very likely to just switch. And so the more connected they are, the more fun they're having. You can't exactly sneak out of a dance if you're right in the middle. Yeah. And so it, the way we, so let's, let's like go through just quickly, you know, the neutrals are the largest pool, neutrals in one, mm-hmm. the largest pool of any, that that's, if you just look at a sales pipeline, typically the most number mm-hmm. of people are neutrals in ones. So the phrase going through the neutrals head is meh. <laughs> it's like they're indifferent. They don't care. Uh, it, yesterday, they want yesterday to look just like today. The most important thing of a, from a client perspective is neutrals. We have to get their attention. Now that mm-hmm. we have their attention, now we need to get them something that intrigues them. So like, mm-hmm. tell me more, tell me more about that. We want them to get them to say some level of tell me more. Then there's the what's in it for me. We call these our two people. We call these mm-hmm. our free pizza people because that at this stage, they're all about like, how can I gain something out of this? Uh, and then you start moving up into the three, fours, and fives. And the threes buy, the fours buy. But then here's where the fives are different. Yes, they buy, but the fives are actively helping you to recruit new clients. Because mm-hmm. the, ones, the ones that are truly fives, they actually don't stay in the center of the dance circle. They're the ones you bring up to the VIP section and say, check it out. Look how this dance floor works. Did you know there's different levels of involvement? Look at those people at the edge and you train them and show them that we need to go out of the center to the edge Mm -hmm. bringing people in. That's absolutely that happens. I I love that analogy. And it's always, um, it's always so helpful when there is a simple metaphor like that, because it's just, you can literally picture it. I'm like picturing in my mind, looking down at this dance floor. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, you go to like a, the high school dance example, if the popular kid that's at the middle of the dance floor goes out to the wallflower and invites them to dance, um, they're likely going to move a little bit closer to the middle. And if the really, really happy, engaged employee um, goes, you know, to a circle or group of employees or even just one who are not all that engaged and has lunch with them and asks about what they're doing and helps them with their problems, they're going to keep that employee, you know, draw them closer to the organization. If you have a customer who's not super engaged and doesn't really care about, um, you know, the fact that you're their vendor, it's, it's a vendor relationship as opposed to a partner relationship. 
and they get to interact with you more and they get to hear from other customers of how you're how they're using your products and services and get those examples they're a lot more likely to feel better connected so it's it's easy to kind of just translate that into all these different situations that's exactly right and and let me add one more group that we haven't covered mm-hmm. yet and and clients have this but they're there I well, it's in the in the organization as well maybe within your sales team uh, and these are the people that you have the neutrals who are indifferent, but then there's one mm-hmm. more step. And we call mm-hmm. we call these the negative Nellies. <laughs> these are the ones that are actively trying to pull people off your dance floor. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is negative Nellies exist throughout the entire organization. Then mm-hmm. Overtly, there's a there's a great quote from a, a the, the happiness advantage where it says overtly negative people can infect a group of people almost instantaneously. Yes. And so negative Nellies need to be dealt with really quickly. And, and my suggestion, if anyone has a negative Nelly within their organization, maybe within their sales team is step one, you got to confront them. They have to be confronted mm-hmm. on the behavior. Uh, and of course there's all sorts of how do you confront them? We don't have time to get into that. But then the second step is you got to decide, are we going to fire or keep this person? Mm-hmm. A players want to hang with A players. B, B and C players also want to hang with A players, but A players don't want to hang with B and C players. Mm-hmm. And so then the last step is they need to fix. Uh, they need to get uh, like fix and get better because we want to give people a chance to to succeed. However, if they can't live up to that A player, I'd much rather keep my A players who care about the whole organization than an A player who is isolating everyone else on mm-hmm. the team. Absolutely. I have a story uh, about that that I can think of. This was a few years ago with a client and they had a branch in Chicago and they brought in a new manager for that branch. And I'm not exaggerating. Within six months, they had to close the branch because everyone had quit. (laughs) And it was a situation where there were some negative personalities and they just drove everybody away. And so what happens is, you know, it doesn't always... uh, it's not always that extreme, but we've all probably seen where there was a negative um, person, for example, on the sales team, since we we talk sales here, and they they irritate everybody around them. You know, the delivery team is so frustrated because the salesperson is constantly um, selling things that they don't really know how to deliver and they're kind of going outside the bounds. And the marketing team is really irritated because this person is constantly just asking for things that they that they shouldn't really have. And they just have this negative, like demanding, frustrating culture. They don't really feel like part of a team. It makes everybody really start to not like not just that person, but a lot of times it kind of stains their perception of the entire team. And they start thinking the whole sales team is demanding and unrealistic and frustrating to work with. And um, it's, you know, so it's within the team, that person gets isolated, but also outside the team within the rest of the organization, they see it too. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so you got to confront those negative Nellies, but recognize who your negative Nellies are. And remember, an Mm -hmm. A player can be a negative Nelly. You can have someone that crushes their metrics every single month, but they could still be fully isolating the whole group. And and, and so then the decision is, do we want to keep that person for the sake of the organization? Um, Because... Are they, are they helping the overall organization? And that honestly is where you think about your fives versus a four. A four can be mm-hmm. really good at their job, but not care about the whole organization, whereas a five can be really, is really good at their job and cares about the whole organization. 
Absolutely. And like you said, sometimes it is a top performer. And I've seen CEOs and sales managers just in pains, just trying to figure out what to do when they've got that person on the team who is their number one salesperson. But I don't like to describe people as toxic, but but the word is often used. They're they're a toxic presence within the team, negative Nelly. And what they don't often recognize is I bet if that person were to leave, other people's performance would improve because yeah. they're actually harming the people around them and making those people less engaged and care less about their job. And so the numbers, which tend to be the thing that that you might focus on, especially as a sales leader, might be lying about what's possible from the rest of the team because this person, yes, they might be a sales superstar, but they're hampering everybody else. That's right. That's right. So deal with them, acknowledge them. But then the only way you know that is if you start to reckon, look at the organization from, from the top down, mm-hmm. from that VIP section of the dance floor, <laughs> you're like, look at that person over there. They're totally trying to grab those neutrals and pull them off the edge of the dance floor so that they start actively, because um, negative energy, just it just it, 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 it rubs off on other people. But so does positive energy. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of even, uh, it's funny, client stories always pop into my head, but I had a client and there was somebody on the team who was, he was pretty much on his path to retirement. He was, you know, on the last legs of his career there. And he was a bit of a detractor of anything new. And they didn't want to push him out of the organization. They just thought, you know, he's been here forever. Um, it wouldn't really be right to do that. But what they did is they just basically built a wall around him. <laughs> and they made sure that junior employees especially didn't get to interact with him. And he really only dealt through his manager, who was very patient and didn't kind of make him follow a lot of the new procedures. And they just kind of, you know, slowly pushed him out of the organization because they didn't want him to infect new people. Because we especially see um, in organizations, the culture of your onboarding process is really, really important because that sets the tone for what people think and expect um, through their entire career. And, you know, if it's off base, if, if they get some misperceptions, um, those will quickly become true because they will make them happen. That's right. In, in the same, just think about sales teams for a moment, you know, that if you're the sales manager for with, and you have a team, we set the tone, we choose what level of energy uh, mm-hmm. that, that group's going to show up at. Meaning if we show up to the meeting at 50% energy, how are we going to expect anyone else to be higher than that? You know, but yes. so it doesn't mean they will, but we at least give them permission to show up at 50. But if you show up at 75, we give them permission to show up at 75. We can show up at 100, we give them permission to show up at 100. So mm-hmm. let's choose to show up at that 100% because there's a thing called emotional contagion, which is one positive person on a team can impact the attitude of the whole team. So be that be that change that that rubs off on everyone else. And I could be wrong here, um, and I never have stats to write to mind like you do, but um, I read somewhere that negative emotional contagion is stronger than positive emotional contagion. And so when you have somebody who's a strong negative presence, you can't just cancel them out with one person who's a strong positive presence. It's really, you need to create a bigger positive experience and more engagement on the other side to kind of balance that, um, which is where- yeah, I don't have the exact data in front of me, but certainly, you know, I, I know that research shows that when two strangers meet, it only takes two minutes for the person with the, that is the most emotionally expressive to transfer their emotion to the other. Yes. 
So it just depends. You know, if you have a silent negative versus a positive positive mm-hmm. uh, or, or an outgoing positive or an expressive positive, it's yep. the one who's more expressive. But certainly the negatives are going to outweigh, the damage of a negative is going to outweigh the number of positives. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I think most people who are somewhat positive are just basically neutral in their expression of it. And that doesn't stand up to a negative person. That's when, you know, somebody goes into the break room and starts complaining about everything and people just kind of sit there and vaguely ignore it, but it's kind of trickling into their ears versus if there's somebody else who's like, oh, you know that, you know, I'm sorry you experienced that, but I actually had such a great experience, blah, blah, blah. And it's a different, a completely different vibe for all of the other people who are sitting in there and are experiencing that situation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you shared um, at a high level. I love that idea of always kind of engaging with people at their level plus one. But do you have any other best practices for leaders that are looking to kind of build that culture of connection inside their organization um, and with clients? And um, I'm going to make this a really big compound question. I apologize in advance, but I'm sure some people are thinking of this. Uh, Technology can make it really difficult to connect with people. And we connect really differently through like Zoom or GoToMeeting than we do when we're meeting in person. So how um, have you seen that leaders need to change the way they communicate with people um, as they're dealing with the pandemic and more people kind of working remotely? Uh, Yeah, the the first part, um, so you had mentioned earlier that onboarding new employees becomes really critical. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what is the tone? What is the culture being set there? Because they're kind of, they're, they're at that stage, they're influenced, that you can influence them mm-hmm. easily. And before they get into the company, maybe start to create the culture there so that when they get in the company, they can start being the change for the future. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes you got to let go of those negative Nellies who are, are bringing the rest of the culture down, who aren't on board with what your style is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know that's certainly something is that onboarding. Then, from a culture perspective, it has to be repeated over and over and over again. There's a joke in the book um, uh, "Scaling Up" where he says that uh, Vern Harnish talks about how great managers are like parents, where they, mm. where where the kids, you know, you're doing it right when the kids start to mock you for saying the same things <laughs> over and over again. And, and that's true. You, it, have the core set of values and rinse and repeat them in any possible situation. Uh, and so, for example, in my company, we have the core values. And in every one-on-one meeting that happens weekly, uh, I'll ask questions that are specifically lined up with those core values. So, like, for example, one of ours is play to win. And so I say, hey, how did you play to win this week? And they know they're answering that. Or another one of ours is raise the tide. And I say, what did you do to raise the tide this week for our clients? And, and so each one of those is, it, so that's another way is, is constantly bring the, the, the intention of the culture you want into the daily, mm-hmm. weekly, monthly um, habits or flow of the company. Absolutely. And, yeah. Then of course I said related to the, the engagement is, and this is with clients too, is understand there's different levels. Start mapping out, like get a visual, create circles. Mm-hmm. Like we have the dance floor, create circles and put the names in there and be like, these are our fives, these are our fours, these are our threes, these are our twos and ones. And then start coming up with ways in which you want to engage those people and how often you're going to engage them. Then keep moving them. Have, it would be great to have this huge wall. You have all your clients on it and you just kind of like move the little checker <laughs> name to the next slot. 
And they're like, all right, great. Now we're past the stage where it's all about what's in it for them. Now they actually care about buying. So what do we got to do? How can we get them in and invested in the organization? Because they care about the company culture. They, they care about our company now. And, and so you know, that, those would be ways in which I would suggest to do it within the organization and with your clients. Then virtual. Mm-hmm. So virtual is its own juggernaut. However, some of the same rules, exact same rules apply. The company culture is still going to exist. It, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just going to be different because it's not going to be as many of those sort of one-off random moments that, mm-hmm. you know, the meeting where someone makes a side joke and everyone laughs, those don't happen because we don't hear each other. We're usually, we're all pretty good about staying silent on the call uh, until it's our turn to speak, unless we're going to the bathroom by accident and we leave our Zoom call on. <laughs> and, and then everybody laughs. Yeah. And I've seen those videos and I'm like, oh boy. It and terrifies I, me, yeah. honestly. <laughs> yeah. We've gone past that. I hope we've gone past that. But um, the, the thing, some things to think about, I call it the 15% lost. Uh, and the idea is, is that our energy, about 15% of our energy is getting lost when it gets translated through a screen. Mm. So this concept of show up at 100% really needs to be 115%. Yep. And if you're showing up at only 45 or 50%, it's going to show up as like 30, 35%. And that goes up huge in terms of getting your team to do something. Then the second thing is I would say leverage the one-on-ones a lot more mm-hmm. than the group because the one-on-ones are where the chance are to check in with people. And don't be afraid to allow the personal life to come into it. Mm-hmm. My stepdaughter has definitely come into my calls often. And I say hi, I have her say hi. My dog has come in and I'm like, here's my doggy. And everyone gets excited. Like this is just, let the, this, actually what I love about it is it's allowing the human side of us to come out more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been so interesting to me seeing both um, employees, uh, you know, and coworkers, you get to see their home and you get to see, um, you know, their family and the people that they always would talk about at work are with them and sometimes in the background of the shot and pets and everything else. And then with clients and with partners, it's been so interesting just to see the different ways that people show up and not be creepy, but, you know, if they know what's behind them, you can kind of look and, you know, their entire uh, accounts rating the, the rooms in the backgrounds. And it really gives you a sense of a person. And, um, there are actually people that I've had calls with on basically a monthly basis for years and had never seen their face. And now that everybody's used to being on camera all the time, I'm seeing them for the first time. There's somebody I worked with for 12 and a half years and I have never seen her until the pandemic made it. So it happened. So wow. Wow. <laughs> sometimes you get actually more out of it. Wow. That's great. Yeah, I love it. And I, and I, I have uh, actually thoroughly enjoyed as someone who does a ton of in-person speaking, I've actually really enjoyed uh, the virtual because there's something about it that's allowing people to open up more. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the fact that I can send people into breakout rooms and bring them back really quickly. Uh, you know, those are things that weren't possible. If I were talking to a room of a thousand, two thousand people, I couldn't be like, all right, yeah, group up <laughs> five and, and talk about blah, blah, blah. Like that wasn't possible. Now it's like a click of a button, they go off. And then there's something about that space that allows them, they're opening up. They're opening up more than they were in person. Yeah, even just little things like, um, you know, the example that you just gave when you've got a lot of people. First of all, you can get more people 
on an online training than you could fit in a room. And so um, I've had clients who've produced conferences for years and they had a cap on the number of people who could attend. And when they moved it online, they just, they got to remove the cap. Um, And then you can use different aspects of the technology, whether it's polls and questions, whether they're serious or a little bit silly and process the data right away and show it to people. You know, we had one that we were doing at the beginning of this of what's your biggest pandemic uh, temptation? You know, is it uh, sleeping in a little bit late? Is it skipping the shower sometimes? Is it, uh, you know, you bought a lot of candy and you just can't help yourself? Um, And it's so interesting to see what people have and then um, just have some discussion on it. And it's it's a way to feel like we're people um, as opposed to just pixels on a screen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I love it. All right. I would love to take a deep dive into this, but I know we are um, kind of looking at the clock and (laughs) getting close to the end. So a question I always like to ask guests is what are some books that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be on what we've been talking about today or um, something else entirely. And if it's not a book, if it's a podcast or another resource, um, certainly that's great as well. Sure. Uh, So I I guess I'll give some different suggestions here is if you want to dig into this concept of how humans are biologically wired to, to mm-hmm. be connected, socially connected, like it's in our DNA and there's research around that. Um, some, and, and then how it's playing out now in a society that feels more like a, like a spiral graph society, meaning mm. like go in and out of communities really quick versus going deep into one. Uh, some books here, the bowling alone is a really powerful mm. book. Uh, Connected is a really powerful book. And then The Story of the Human Body uh, was another great one. Uh, Three different authors. uh, Each one of those comes at it from a different perspective, but each one was really powerful in my understanding of this this, this, biological need to be socially connected. Uh, Then from from the company side, um, I would say scaling up is the the one I've referenced, Vern Hardish, and the five functions of a team was really powerful to be able to just understand team dynamic. Because one of the things in there that I think is important is oftentimes people get confused that dance floor theory is this like kumbaya approach, but actually it's it if it's done right, then the the approach to build a culture of connection is actually meant and allows for disagreement to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a healthy, positive way, just like in a relationship, you know, like conflict is good in a relationship. It's how you fight. That's the issue. <laughs> yeah. And if you've never had a fight, you've probably never really um, gotten all that uh, connected. And yeah. I know um, I, my boss and I, especially we've worked together for 12 and a half years. And one of the ways that we can tell that we worked effectively together is when we have differences of opinion and we can process them in a, in a really effective, collaborative, constructive way, um, as opposed to one person just uh, festering their, their discontent and their ideas. So excellent, excellent uh, books. And we'll include links to all of those in the show notes. Great. That's perfect. There's so many more, but I feel like that's a good start. That's a, that's a great start. All right. If you want people to learn more about you and your work and everything that you do, where should they go? Well, if you Google Swift Kick, which is the company, uh, three main results come up. One is an 80s rock band called Swift <laughs> Kick that's trying to have a revival career. Uh, that's not us. The other one is people swiftly kicking their friends in the rear uh, and then recording and uploading to YouTube. That's also not us. Uh, and then... <laughs> 
But you can find us, uh, you just Google Swift Kick, but also Swift Kick HQ. Uh, and I would spell my last name for everyone, but honestly, it's such a long name that's probably better just to Google Swift Kick. And you'll find Tom Kriegelstein. Uh, that's all my socials and everything, but you, you can connect with me that way. Absolutely. And we'll include links to those in the show notes for people who are listening while washing dishes or something and unable to to take notes. So Tom Kriegelstein at Swift Kick HQ. Thank you so, so much for being here today. I had so much fun. Likewise. Thanks for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that Tom and I have been talking about today, including the spelling of his name at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 289. If you enjoyed the show today, please recommend this to a friend. That is the best way to help more people discover the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure to do that so you can hear every new episode as soon as it's posted. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We love to hear your feedback. Leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. And don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!